Uh, I also see it as like a big responsibility too. Like I'm, you know, I have hopefully going to have this, you know, fairly high net worth and it's a huge responsibility. Like how are you going to use that money to change the world? Just having a bunch of money to have money doesn't really do anything for anyone else. So how am I effectively going to use that, you know, later on as I get older to hopefully affect, you know, positive change somewhere along the way. So I kind of view it as as a big responsibility as well. You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Okay, welcome back to another episode of the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast. This is episode number 146. Chase, what's going on? How are you? Not a lot. Doing pretty well. How are you doing? Good. We just had two interviews tonight. Interviewed uh, one guy who's well on his way to becoming a millionaire. He's at about 650000 He's a college professor. And then another guy who is mostly in real estate. Kind of got, a, not a later start, right? But late 30s or mid 30s, started investing in real estate, mostly self-storage. So a couple interesting interviews coming up here. Yeah, no, we've got a lot of great ones in the pipeline. And like I mentioned last week, super excited for so many of our guests uh, that we have coming up. It, it's truly remarkable, uh, those that have reached out to us. And we really appreciate it. You know, this this show would not happen without you all. So, so thank you. Yeah. And, and I mean, last week I thought we had a great interview. We had John. He has a net worth of over 5.4, about 5.4 million. So one of our higher millionaires, uh, he wrote a recently, uh, recently wrote a book or a couple of years ago, I think, right now called The Wealthy Gardener. So really interesting interview with him. He talked about being struggling to buy pizza in his 20s. And at age 30, he had an I've had a moment, I guess, if you want to call it that, and figured out what he wanted to do and became a little bit more focused. So really interesting uh, interview last week with John. That's episode 145. Today's guest is interesting. We have Philip. He's an Air Force pilot. He's been in the Air Force for 16 years. He has four children and a current net worth of 2.4. So stay tuned with us for that. Jace, one thing we were talking about earlier, you came across it initially, right, an interview or a podcast with a guy that talked about experiences and the value of experiences in in paying more, at least initially, right, or early on in your life to have those experiences, that some of those are things you can't replace. Yeah, no, it's been an interesting topic. The the the, the gentleman who I've listened to and I, I guess is kind of on this train, I guess, if you will, somewhat of a movement, I guess, if you want to call it that. His name is Bill Perkins. And he's got a remarkable story, but one of the things he's pitching or is an advocate for is just taking experiences and spending as it comes in your life instead of waiting, uh, you know, and, and spending your money so much later in life, if you will. And so, you know, he goes into, I've heard him on a couple of different interviews. He's got a book out and he goes into this process of, let's just say, for example, in your 20s and you're single and you have opportunities to go travel and do certain things and you don't do them. Well, that, that ship sails. Uh, you know, you get into your 30s and you get married. You can never go travel as a single person and you forget those memories. And he, and he gets into this long description about how, you know, so much of our focus financially is targeted towards growing our net worth and compounded interest. And he spends all this time talking about the compounded growth or compounded interest, if you will, of these experiences that we have. And that, you know, if you do something in your teens or your 20s, you know, let's just say you're in your 30s or 40s, you can draw back on that experience and it continues to bear fruit, if you will. 
And so it's just been something that I've been thinking about lately, you know, especially talking to so many of our millionaires and we, we have this focus on building wealth and obtaining financial independence and freedom. And it just caused me to take a step back a little bit. It's always something that I think you and I talk about trying to find that balance of what makes sense, how much to save versus how much to live in the moment now. Because yeah, you don't want to get to the point where you're 60 and say, man, I wish I would have done that in my 20s or 30s or 40s or 50s or whatever. Yeah. And the one piece I liked is, is he said, look, some of these experiences are meant to have when you're 25. Right. I mean, there's things that I'm interested in right now that I'm not going to be interested in 10 years or there's things that I was interested in 15, 20 years ago that I'm not interested in now. Yeah. So this this mindset of, hey, I'll just do it later. I'm going to save money and then I'll do it. He says, look, a lot of that stuff you might not ever end up doing. Right. I mean, okay, if, if you're pushing off a house sale, that's different. Right. But if it's skydiving or if it's going on a backpacking trip through Europe and just picking out examples, right? I mean, you, you start having kids, life gets busier. Those are things you just, you you may not do. And so that was, I thought that was a good point of his in saying, look, don't push off all experiences because some of those you won't do again. Oh yeah, totally. I think you know, and I have had a, a few of those in our lifetime. I, I think back to one a trip I took with some buddies in college, and we just went on a whim, decided to go on a road trip, wanted to do it for less than a hundred dollars. And, you know, the only way to make it all work and do some of the things we really wanted to do is sleep in the car two of the nights. And, you know, we're college, so we're like broke, whatever. We slept in the car one of the, I think we were there for four nights, two of the nights we slept in the car. And one of the night, one of my buddies gets up and he's just pouring Dr. Pepper down his back like two in the morning. And, you know, he's like, we're like, dude, what are you doing? It's like so hot out. He's like, I just got to cool down. And the only thing we had in the car that was cold was Dr. Pepper. <laughs> the morning he wakes up, he totally forgot about it. He did no idea what went on. He's like, why am I so sticky? And we're like, dude, you know, remember pouring Dr. Pepper down your back? And it is sneaking a laugh. I mean, we paid nothing, right? We slept in the car. It's terrible, right? We didn't get any sleep. But to this day, the three of us discuss this trip all the time. And we have so many laughing, funny memories about it. Yeah, so it's a it's a pretty interting thing. Uh, experiences, right? He's and that's what we've heard from our millionaires: are experiences worth the money. So, uh, pr- pretty interesting. Just take a look again. That's Bill Perkins. If you Google that, I, th- I think it'll probably just pop up. So we appreciate everybody who entered the giveaway last week. Thank you, thank you. We had tons of entries, the most we've ever had. So the the three winners have been notified, and we'll get those books out this week. Uh, there's new a bunch of new giveaways coming up. So whenever we we interview somebody, if they've written a book, we try to get one to have a giveaway. So there'll be some in the new future. So hang with us. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, feel free to send us an email. Our email is millionairesunveiled at gmail.com. So thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in. Hope everybody is staying safe and healthy. And without any further delay, let's get into today's episode with Philip. Philip, do you want to just give us a little bit about your background and what you're up to now? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm an Air Force pilot. I've been in the Air Force for the last 16 years. Uh, Bounced all around the country and uh, overseas doing that. I've had a great time. Being a pilot in the Air Force has been a lot of fun. I've uh, been deployed a lot as well, so I've been able to see uh, a whole bunch of the world. Uh, along the way, uh, I met my wife while we both were uh, at the academy together, Air Force Academy. And we both uh, graduated uh, from there, became pilots together, both actually flying the same airframe. So we got to see the world and do a lot of our stuff together. So it's been a great ride. Uh, we have four children. Uh, we started having kids after our first assignment. We actually adopted our first daughter found out that we were pregnant as soon as we got home with her. So our two daughters are about eight months apart. Uh, They're both 10 and nine now. And then we have two sons that are uh, seven and five. After we had our last son, my wife was still in the Air Force and we decided it was getting a little crazy. 
having four kids and us both having the threat of possibly deploying and, and running around the world still. So she was able to get out of the Air Force, spent uh, three years at home uh, with our youngest until he was uh, grown. Then uh, she actually started flying again. Uh, she just missed flying. She thought she was never going to go back to it, but she ended up missing it. Went back in. So she uh, she currently flies for a, a major airline as well. Uh, along the way, we piled up uh, rental homes, uh, personal homes that we rented out. Just continued to save aggressively or invest, I guess, aggressively uh, all along the way. We had having dual income was really helpful. We basically lived on one income, uh, invested the other one. By doing that, we've been able to amass over uh, 2 million. We're close to 2.4, 2.5 million right now. And a net worth just from really aggressively investing early on and piling up money along the way and also trying to have a little bit of a life with the kids. That's awesome. So let's get into that. So 2.4 million. How is that kind of broken up? All right. I'll give you the rundown. We've got a little bit. Uh, there's a lot of different buckets, but it's all primarily uh, equities. I don't have any bonds. Uh, I, since we have kind of a long time frame and horizon, I've, I've always kind of been in, in equity and mostly most of that is mutual funds, although we do have a little stock. So in our just liquid savings checkings, we've got about 40 grand that we just keep kind of as an emergency fund. I've got a Robinhood stock account that has 25K. Kind of a different thing. I bought season tickets for the Los Angeles Chargers. We live in the LA area and uh, the new stadium just went up. It's going to be up this year. So I bought $100,000 worth of seat license. That's two seats that we, we own for the next 50 years. Uh, so I can sell those seats if I don't go to the game. They're VIP seats. They're pretty awesome. They're like on the 47 yard line. Uh, I can sell those tickets, uh, so I kind of use it as investment slash uh, personal thing if we want to go to some games also. So there's a hundred. How much does there. how much does that cost? Sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, no problem. The, the seat licenses were fifty grand a seat, and that's just to secure the seats. And then the tickets are about uh, three hundred and fifty per game. You got to pay that and, on top. And and can you flip the like per game? What can you sell it for? Do you think? <laughs> it depends on the charges. Do a little bit. Yeah, hopefully, we get some uh, some more fans. It's been a little touchy as they as they started to move to Los Angeles. But um, looking at other seasons or other stadiums that have uh, like these prime premium seats, if you look at the Cowboys or some of the bigger stadiums, those seats will go for between five hundred and a thousand dollars for the premium VIP seats. They, wow. they, these include parking, food, drinks. They're all inclusive kind of seats with VIP entrances. So. Uh, it's a little bit of a kind of a, of a gambling thing. Like I may end up just going to every game and, and sitting on all the seats. But I'm a huge sports fan, so like if that's the worst <laughs> thing that happens, that's fine. Uh, if I can flip them for a profit, that's cool too. So I kind of th- put it as a little bit of a win-win. My, me and my wife, wife both went in. Initially, I was like, "Oh, this will be a good investment." She's like, "You know, no one may want these seats." I was like, "Well, then I'll just become a huge football fan and go to every game." So I kind of both sides <laughs> of the point on that one. So um, if they if they move to LA, do you keep those? Re- do you keep that right? Yeah, they are. They already moved to LA. So oh, to LA I'm sorry. Okay. Two years. Yeah, I know. If you're not, a, if you're not, a, everyone still calls them the San Diego Chargers. So, uh, but the fear is that they move away, right? So I asked that when we bought the tickets, like, hey, if they move to, you know, they become the London Chargers in a couple of years, uh, what happens? And I basically get to keep the seats in whatever stadium they move to. Uh, and there is a third party market where I can sell that license on like a third party uh, site or a third party market to sell the license to those seats. So I'll own them if they end up moving or I can, or I can hopefully sell them if I need to. Just kind of an interesting little side, <laughs> side, uh, side venture there on that one. Yeah. That's um, interesting. I, yeah. Little, uh, I bought a, into a syndicate. I was listening to syndicate, uh, syndicate stuff. And so I have a $50,000 share in a 400 door home outside of Atlanta. Uh, that's a three year hold on that. So uh, I'll have that we'll see if that matures in three years and I get a little bit of dividends out of that. Uh, we've got a 529 for the kids. We've got 15K in that. The reason that's kind of low right now is we actually, with us both being in the military, we have uh, the, the 9-11 GI Bill that we can transfer to our kids. So we've both transferred our post-9-11 GI Bills to our kids. So two kids are going to go to college on that. Um, so we only have two colleges to pay for. And with us both being academy grads, if we can trick one of them to go into the academy, that's another free education. So I'm, I'm banking on maybe only paying for one college. 
so we'll, we'll, we'll continue to add to that 529 and see how things work. There's also a chance that we'll be able to use cash flow, you know, both their, both of the other kids college since they're only five and seven, we got some time to go to. So I don't have a whole bunch in the 529 and another uh, brokerage account that just has some stocks. This is mostly my Apple stock. I got about 75 grand in a brokerage account that has probably 50 to 60 grand of Apple that I bought. Uh, way back when and just held on to it. I've sold a little bit here and there when we did some remodeling and stuff just to have uh, a little bit less in, in overall just single stock. My IRA, which is again, mostly mutual funds. Um, I, I'm a big S&P guy, uh, index fund investor. So that's 75% S&P and like a 25% growth uh, mutual fund. That's about 205,000. Uh, we're saving up for a down payment on our eventual next home. I've got about 50 grand and that's mostly an S&P fund there. Uh, my wife's IRA, 170 grand. Uh, again, that's mostly an S&P and a little bit of growth. Uh, she just started at her company, so she's got a uh, 401k that has $18,000 in it. The airlines are pretty awesome with their retirement. They give an automatic 16% contribution of your uh, of your paycheck from the month goes into your 401k. So she doesn't put anything in, and they just take 16% of her uh, of her gross pay from the month and dump it into a 401k. So we haven't touched that. That's just grown pretty much organically over the last couple of years. My uh, TSP, so a military as a TSP, that's about 53 uh, grand. Again, that's mostly in their C fund, which is uh, their S&P mirror. And then our, our big chunk of it is in our, our mutual fund like nest egg that we started with uh, USA, which is where we started banking and investing with being in the military. And that has about $850,000 in it. And that's was that's we started that fund just like when I when we started in the military I was like well I don't want to invest in retirement I don't want to wait fifty or until I'm fifty nine sixty to get that money let's just start investing in something we have access to if we ever need it so that's been our fund that I've just dumped money in you know thousands of dollars a month uh, as we went along the way and that's grown to like I said it's at eight fifty close to eight fifty now and so that's uh, kind of our nest egg that we have uh, most of the money in, and we have access to it because it's not locked up in a retirement so if I want to tap into that to do a down payment or do any other investing we kind of have it uh, accessible. But it's grown so much that I have a lot of taxes. So I haven't been tapped into it too much because I don't want to pay the taxes on it. And then we have uh, three vehicles worth about 56 grand each. We don't have a bunch of cars. Although we did buy a pretty sweet minivan recently. The electric Pacifica was about almost 48 grand. I think we bought that. But there's a bunch of tax rebates and incentives on that as well. So uh, so that all totals up to about 1.6 and kind of liquid cash investments we have. And then we have a bunch of uh, rentals, three of which are paid for. Totally, though, those are worth uh, 58, 60, and 70. And then uh, our personal residence and some other uh, rentals that are uh, between 65 and 195,000. And uh, those are worth about 1.7 million. And I have about a million dollars in um, mortgages on, on all those and our personal residence. So all that totaled up about 2.4. Wow, that's awesome. And just, just for our listeners, roughly what percentage of your personal residence is kind of made up in your, in your uh, net worth there? Yeah, so our house, uh, we bought our house for $440,000. We currently owe three hundred seventy on it. And it's, uh, California's uh, appreciated a bit. It's probably worth about five forty now. It's gone up about $100,000. So yeah, roughly uh, 200, a little under 200000 I guess one hundred seventy one k. I got it right there, uh, in equity in a personal home. So not a mu- not much of it is personal residence. Okay, cool. Awesome. And, and in, just for, for the, our listeners' sake, as you've been kind of building this portfolio have you been pretty intentional in getting to these kind of ratios? Did it always start this way with the rentals and, and with the equities? Or how has it kind of all come to, to be where it is today? Yeah, so I, I remember when I first started investing, I got out of college and I asked my parents. So I was like, hey, I want to start investing. I've got a little bit of my investment. What do you suggest? And they said, well, I would just kind of go with a, a generic S&P low index fund. So that started. I started doing that. But that seemed kind of boring to just put it all on that. So I've done kind of a 75% S&P with a 25% 
kind of a growth just because we have a long time horizon. So a little bit more risky uh, investment. And I pretty much that formula has worked. So I pretty much just stuck with that. It's kind of boring, but S&P for about 75% of it and then 25% with a little more of the uh, aggressive side. And then we kind of became the, the whole housing thing kind of became a, a beast on its own. We were getting ready to move out of our first house and uh, we really didn't have much equity into it. And my parents had one rental home and I was like, hey, how's this rental stuff working out? And they're like, oh, it's been pretty good for us. And you know, we make a little money on the rental. So we rented out that first home uh, and it worked, went really well. Actually, we, that was almost 10 years ago and we had the same. Uh, renter in that home. She hasn't moved out. She doesn't want to buy another house. So she's been awesome. That's the only one I self-managed just because I have such amazing tenant in there. Uh, I had one uh, bad experience trying to self-manage uh, my second rental. And uh, after that, it's been all uh, property managers and rentals after that. Um, I started listening to a lot, or reading a lot of Robert Kiyosaki and he was uh, big on obviously real estate and leveraging real estate, which is a little opposed to Ramsey who wants to have all cash for real estate. So I kind of you know took both those and tried to try to chew on both those and decide how we wanted to do it. We actually got our first our first house that we ever bought. We were able to pay that whole house off. We had no mortgage on it. It was 220 With all of our overseas money that we got when we were living in Japan, we were able to knock that house totally out. So I had no payment uh, on that house, which helped my wife left the military because we had that rent coming in from that house with no payment. But after reading uh, Kiyosaki's book, I was like, you know, that money is just sitting in there making me, you know, whatever it's appreciating that, not really doing much. So I tapped into that, ended up taking a mortgage and pulled $170,000 out of that house after we had it paid off. And then use that 170 to invest in all these other rentals. Also mortgaged at about 80% initially when we bought them. Although I did buy my first three with cash. And I think that was helpful, just giving me a little bit of buffer. Uh, so I have three, I have three rentals that generate about $2,000 a month and a little over 2000 in cash flow. So I have a basis of, you know, if everything else goes wrong, I have these that I know they're going to cash flow. So I felt a little more comfortable taking the risk and getting mortgages on the next three, three rentals. Uh, so that was kind of how I justified, you know, leveraging a little bit higher since I had a pretty solid base of, of a couple of paid for rentals that were already cash flowing pretty, pretty decently. Okay. So I want to, I want to jump into those rentals, but, but first of all, how much, how much do you have in the market across everything, across all the buckets? Did you say like 1.5? Just in the market. If I take out, I mean, I have 1.6 liquid and I mean, we only have 40 K plus that hundred in the seats, everything else is in the 50 K. So probably about 1.4, 1. 1.4 1. or so in the market right now. Okay. And last week, I'm just, I'm just thinking out loud and something I want to ask you last week we recording this at the beginning of the March. So this was after there yeah. was a big dip in the market at the end of February. Right. So S and P I'm just taking averages here. It's going to be general numbers about 11% down for the week, right? 11, 12 or something. That's about 150,000 for you probably yeah, so or, took, or a couple yeah, hundred. So we, yeah. We lost that. I remember our, our, that equity account that I had most of the money on was up to 940. And then, and as a, before today, the market bounced back up a little today, it was down to 826. So that one lost about 110. And then with our other ones, yeah, we were probably close to 140, 150 that we lost. So that did it affect behavior at all? Did you sell? Did you put more in? Did you did. any I adjustments bought, made? I didn't have a bunch of capital in around, but I did buy a little bit. Luckily, our, our time horizon is far enough off that I, you know, we, one thing that really kind of helped help cage that is we started investing shortly after before 2008 or in 2008 when the market crashed. Uh, and so I remember our first time we only had like a hundred thousand maybe in the market and we and went down to 50,000. I was like, Oh my gosh, we just lost $50,000. And you know, over the course of this thing, we just lost half our money. And it was kind of like, okay, <laughs> then I saw it all come back like right away. Well, not right away. You know, in the next few years, the markets recovered and it all came back. Right. So now right. I just view these corrections as kind of like seeing into the future. Like we've never been in a point where the market hasn't recovered to where it once was. It may take some time, but basically I see these as time machines. Now I've traveled back in time to when the market was wherever it is. Uh, I'll invest more. 
And uh, it's going to come back to where it was. It never hasn't. So unless we look into some sort of apocalyptic time, the markets are going to come back to where they where they have. It just depends on your horizon. Now, if I was three years from retirement, I'd probably be uh, a little more concerned. And, and I'm I'm trying to decide how I'm going to start playing this out. If I'm going to go to more bonds, more more conservative investments as we get closer to retirement. But really, I don't need any access to this money for the next 20 years. So I have such a long time horizon. I have the benefit of of sitting there and I can stomach market fluctuations. But I was kind of curious. I was like, you know, if it does dip, I knew we were kind of due for a little bit of a pullback. You know, how am I going to feel? And it really didn't affect me very much personally. I was like, oh, I'll buy a little more since on discount and just kind of viewed it as a as a free time machine moving back in time. And I know the market went back to where it was at some point. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's interesting and it's interesting to think about and, and play with once the numbers get a little bit bigger, right? Yeah. Because we, I mean, we just released what, Jason, a couple of weeks ago, this this guy from this engineer who net worth of seven or eight or, or something, and he was primarily invested in the equity markets. And so, you know, at 10%, he lost close to $700,000. Yep. Right. Yeah. It's all, it's all ratios at some point. Right. So you're just like, well, it's 10%, but it's it, when you, when you're talking about different networks, it really becomes like a huge sum, but I guess it's all relative to, to where you're at. Right. For yeah. And he'd probably say, grand. he'd probably just say the same thing as you. Right. He'd probably yeah. say, I mean, whatever, if it comes back in three years, you know, it'll come back in three years. Right. I mean, I, rem- I remember asking like, Hey, aren't you afraid there's going to be a correction and don't you just want to pull some out of it just in case? But same answer as you, you know, even though he's a little bit older, it's, Hey, I'm just going to, I'm just going to ride it. Right. Let's just see what happens. If you can afford to ride it. And that's funny because I'm really not much of a gambler. Like when I go to Vegas and I put $20 on a blackjack table, I'm like, Oh man, I don't want to lose this money, but I'll be, I'm willing to lose 150 (laughs) grand in a week in the market. Right. Right. So it's it's just perspective, I guess. So I, I know you hit on real estate here, but maybe just before we dive into like specific deal details, maybe yeah. high level tell us. I know you said cash flow of about two thousand. Um, I assume that's the sum, right, of the of the ones that cash flow. But maybe just high level, what did you buy the house for? If it has a mortgage, and how much yeah. it ca- how much it cash flows a month if it does? Yeah, sure. I have all those numbers here. So on I'll, I'll my uh... So our first ever rental we bought was our obviously our primary uh, residence that we that we first bought. Um, that one currently, let's see when's cash flow. It runs for thirteen fifty, and my mortgage on that is like thirteen fifteen. So that one's pretty much a net zero cash flow, but it's got one hundred thirty five thousand dollars or one hundred seventy two thousand uh, dollars mortgage balance on it. Uh, our next house we bought for uh, two forty. Uh, we currently owe one hundred ninety five on it. Uh, it rents for sixteen fifty a month. And the mortgage after after management fees, that one's pretty much a wash on the mortgage as well. So those are really just appreciation plays. I'm not getting too much as far as cash flow off of those. So once that's why I was like, uh, I need to find something other than just buying these bigger, you know, single single family homes that we've been living in if I want to make money. So then I went to uh, these turn these turnkey investment properties, and these next three that I bought were all obviously much uh, cheaper. So they were fifty eight thousand, sixty one thousand, and seventy one thousand was the price. So I saved up, uh, paid cash for each of those. Uh, those rent for 700, 705, and 760. So those are ones that are just about $2,000 uh, a month in cash flow on that. Then I bought combined. Some more, yeah, combined 2000 there. I bought some more, a uh, little more expensive properties. Those were purchased for 164 and 184. Uh, they rent for 1200 and 1350. Uh, and the mortgage is just about that. And I net a couple hundred dollars on those a month uh, as well. So those are a little more appreciation than, than cash flow properties. So, so all told cash flow per month on all the properties is close to probably around $3,000 with mortgage payments uh, on all of them about $5,500. So 
uh, about $8,500 and around $5,500 in mortgage payments a month in on the um, Okay, on the so about 3000 cash flow. And yeah. and the, 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 the first two and then the last two, I assume, are in your location or somewhat close to you and the three turnkeys are not. Yeah, all the also the yeah, all the turnkeys I have are Memphis, 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 Little Rock, Oklahoma City, and Little Rock. So all those are spread throughout the Midwest where the rental where the rental numbers work a little better. And then the our, our three primary residences that we've lived in were Spokane, Washington, and uh Enid, Oklahoma. So those don't so the only house we have that's local is the one we live in. I don't have any local uh rentals. Everything's done through property managers. Spokane, man, that's my hometown. Oh yeah, nice. Yeah, we yeah. love Spokane. That place is awesome. Like if we could move back there, I would. It would really? really cool. I was in the cool. snow. Like we got two feet of snow one day, and, I, and I'm from California, <laughs> and I was like, "What is this?" And I'd never plowed a snow, you know, shoveled the driveway before, so it was an introduction to snow and, and winter. But but Bloomsday and the downtown area, yeah, Hoopcraft and all the stuff they have there, we loved it. So it was it was a lot of fun. That's awesome. So, Philip, I want to push you on the – I'm just going to press you a little bit because I think yeah. it's interesting. It's something that we haven't really talked about even though we've had a bunch of real estate investors on the show. So you have about, what, three of the rentals that really just cover the mortgage and don't cash flow, right? Is yeah, the, th- is the thought there – to play the appreciation game or to just, you know, pay, I don't know if you have it on a 15 year or a 30 year. Cause in one sense you could have a, a, a unique strategy where you just pay it off with a 15 year and then either sell the house or then it cash flows. Yeah. So I've, I've kind of been debating now of how much I want to start dumping these houses and make them cash flow. Or if I want to just kind of hold them long-term and play the appreciation, I've got enough cash flow coming off and we've got enough, we're making enough money now to live comfortably. Like I don't know what I would do with a whole bunch of extra income other than just continue to invest it. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of just leaving them leveraged and, uh, using the depreciation. Like I basically pay, I'm getting ready to do my taxes this year, but I'll basically pay, and this was Kiyosaki's point. I'll basically pay no tax on all this income because I can depreciate some, almost all of it away in the thing. So if I start paying them off, my tax bill goes up and I, I lose some of the tax benefits from that. So I'm kind of weighing that against the, you know, how much debt do I really want to hold right now? I feel like it's pretty comfortable, uh, level. But I could, I, yeah, it's kind of a, a toy, a toy, a, kind of a, a yin and yang of deciding whether I want to keep paying this, these, these balances down and have cash flow a little much. Right now, it, it's not going to do me any good. So yeah, the thought is for these ones that are that aren't really cash flowing, they are going to increase uh, some with rent. The, uh, the one company increased fifty bucks uh, each of those rentals uh, a year. So those that'll increase over the next few years. So as they go on, they will they will start to cash flow a little better. But yeah, for right now, I'm just going to hold them and let them appreciate and play the appreciation game on those that are pretty neutral on the uh, on the cash flows. And what do you have mortgage wise? Fifteen or thirty years? Thirty years on everything uh, right now. The first when we first bought our first house, I was like. We're going to pay this thing off quick. We're going to get a 15-year loan, and it was 5.875% at that time. We get a 15-year, which I thought was an awesome rate. It was like, we're under 6%. Now, all of our all the homes that we bought for personal residences that we run out are at 3.25%. And, and then all my rentals are between 5.875 and 6.125. So all right around the 6% rate for, for most of those. So do you think about refinancing now that we're, we're at an all-year low on the treasury rate here? Yeah, I've kind of thought about, I've kind of looked into that. I was like, hey, do I want to refinance? I don't know if I could refinance the rentals for too much less since you don't get a great rate on those since they're second, second homes. Uh, I might be able to refinance uh, right. those a little bit. Um, but my personal residence, uh, I've, I have actually, I contacted someone a couple uh, weeks ago and said, hey, we're the current refinance rates because we have a, you know, we have a fair amount of equity now with the appreciation. I could pull some out of our personal residence and, and possibly use some of that, but they're, they're not, it's not, I mean, we got to get it down to 3% maybe, or maybe a little under, I, if, if there was something down in two and a half percent range, you know, that might be tempting, but 
right now, not not like jumping on that to refinance, at least in our personal residence. So who did you use for the turnkey properties? Just curious if somebody listening wants to do the same and did you have a good experience with them? Yeah, yeah. I'd be happy to, to give those out. I, I went with Mid-South Home Buyers. They've been really uh, easy to work with. They were awesome. So they're, they're only, the only reason I didn't continue to buy houses with them is their supply just ran out. So I would buy a house about every eight months starting you know two or three years ago. And then you have to wait another eight or nine months before you could even be in the pool to buy another house because they had like a list. Uh, so then I started after you bought uh, a couple from them, I reached out to Memphis Invest, which I think they just changed their name to, to the REI Invest, like real estate investment. Uh, but Memphis Invest was their old name. And that's the company I bought the other two for after I uh, took a more loan out on our, uh, our that house that we had paid off. I used the, the proceeds from that to buy those other two plus that syndicate uh, that I had. So uh, Memphis Invest, their, their homes are, uh, those are the ones that are a little more expensive and they don't cash flow as well. They're a little more of appreciation. Uh, you don't get a, a side of cash flow because those houses are 165 and $185,000 houses. Uh, but they were all the, all, all both those companies I highly recommend. They were, uh, they were very easy to work with. Memphis Invest will still call me like weekly and be like, do we have any questions? I'm like, no, as long as the check's coming in, I don't have any questions, but they're super <laughs> customer friendly. Uh, they'll reach out to you all the time, almost, almost the point where it's too much. Uh, so and, and, um, I had really good experiences working with those. And the turnkey has been, it's been good. I, you know, I could, I could go out and do all the contracting you know, and flip a house and try to do that stuff but with four kids and both of us working. It's worth my money to pay for a turnkey that's going to go out and do all the work. And then they also have property management as well. So there's one stop shop for, Doing the doing the flips, uh, buying the house, and then being my property manager. I don't have to work with four different people. I work with one person, and uh, it's super simplified. Okay, and then what about financing? Do they help you set that up as well? Yeah, they have preferred lenders, so they'll be like, "Hey, this is you know we have three lenders that we really work with, and that can be a little tricky because lenders don't want to give out a loan on a seventy thousand dollars house and not really worth their time. So they have enough. Uh, they have lenders they work with that they give them enough volume that they're willing to work with you and, and get a loan on on a pretty inexpensive house where you get. So right now that one house I just bought has it was eighty thousand eighty eighty thousand dollars. I got a loan for sixty four thousand dollars. You know it's the rent, the equity or the rent the uh, mortgage payments like four hundred and fifty bucks on it or something growing everything. So but you said it was a, it's an eighty thousand dollar house and you got a sixty four thousand dollar mortgage. Yeah. So the loan oh, is sixty four k. Yeah. So, so you only put down what like twenty thousand after closing costs. Twenty thousand was my closing. Yeah, I have sixteen k in equity. It was twenty thousand to close on it. So really inexpensive to get into the house. It's not like you need a hundred thousand dollars to go out and invest with uh, with at least with Mid South. You can get in for a super low, super low price. And and what is that? A two bed, one bath? Uh, that one. I, most of them are like three, three one, uh, or three twos. Three one, uh, three two. Okay. Yeah, that's kind of their standard go to. Wow, so that's pretty amazing. You can someone can get into that for twenty thousand dollars and cash flows. What'd you say, four fifty a month, four hundred? Yeah, a month? that that one cash flows about four four hundred a month. Uh, uh, that's not including. I'll still have to pay. No, that one has the, the um. Yeah, that's got a mortgage on. It. So that includes insurance and as, and uh, property tax and all that. Uh, so yeah, that cash flows about four hundred a month. There may be some. You know, I've had pretty good luck with with uh, maintenance on this. I've had to replace a door here or there. Uh, some pretty minor maintenance, a couple hundred bucks here or there. I haven't had huge maintenance cost uh, with them. So yeah, cash flow on about 400 bucks a month for a $1,600 investment is pretty, pretty good. Yeah, that was going to be my next question is maintenance. And then uh, other question would be tenants. How often is there turnover and have you had any bad tenants? Uh, all the tenants I've had through the turnkey rentals, uh, I don't, I don't, they'll, they'll tell me, Hey, we got, you know, Mr. X in here and he's a bus driver in Memphis and this is his income. We verified it. It's three to one to his rent ratio. Uh, looks good. So I don't really even know the tenants. The property property company takes care of all that. Uh, I have had a, a turnover. They do charge like a, a a releasing fee and like a turnover fee when the when the tenant comes up. They usually sign you know about one to two to three year leases. Um, and so there's a little bit of cost when they flip it. But 
the uh, the mid south ones at least, I guarantee they'll get a runner in within ninety days, or they'll start covering your mortgage. So they're pretty good about getting people right in there. So that one's kind of like a risk free one. They're, it's not going to sit empty for more than more than ninety days. And then the mid south ones are, or I'm sorry, the Memphis Invest ones are pretty much the same. Where they they haven't had any issues. The checks have come in. That one, every single check came in last year, and I didn't have a single maintenance cost uh, for the whole year for both those houses. So the companies are are pretty good. You know, they 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 want to have repeat renters and buyers so that i think they have a vested interest in making sure that there's not huge maintenance costs if they can if they can screen the tenants and get good tenants in there it's a win-win for everyone yeah phil got a tremendous story built a tremendous net worth where do you kind of go from here do you have a passive income goal net worth goal you're trying to hit where, where do you head so yeah that's kind of a fun game to play and i was a I was a weather major in college which sounds kind of fun it's like clouds and stuff that's cool and being a pilot i thought that would be fun but it, I quickly found out that weather is mostly physics and our upper level classes where I was like, I'm a physics major. I'm not a weather major. You got to learn about lifting forces and mechanisms and how all these computer models work together. So I became kind of an Excel, you know, not wizard, but I learned how to use Excel more because we're doing a lot of math and stuff. So early on, I was like, man, if I, let's see what if I extrapolate this out, I learned how to basically make extrapolations on, on the income. So if I have, you know, this much income right now and I can earn, uh, 10% growth rate, you know, if I start mapping that out, what's it what's it going to turn into? And so I don't really have like an end term goal. But if I just look at like a 10%, you know, market growth rate, and I invest like a quarter of our of our income into it, I can like project out, you know, approximately where our net worth is going to be. So that's fun. So if I look at when I'm like 55, it's about $11 million. When I get to 65, it's close to $30 million. And then 85 ish, you know, getting towards the end of a uh, end of my time uh hopefully i live live longer than that but i was born 1980 so 2065 it's over 205 million dollars so it's kind of fun to play that out and so i was like well it'd be cool to have 100 million dollars at some point in life that'd be kind of cool to say obviously the dollar the value dollar is going to go down you know it's not going to be worth what it is today but uh but i'm just going to keep chugging along for now hopefully be extremely generous with it at some point you know pay for the kids to go to school and i've heard other people talk on the podcast but you know how much do you leave your kids enough to do something that they want to do but not enough to do nothing that they don't have to do anything so it's kind of a balance of how much do we want to leave to our kids uh i also see it as like a big responsibility too like i am you know i have hopefully going to have this you know fairly high net worth and it's a huge responsibility like how are you going to use that money to change the world just having a bunch of money to have money doesn't really do anything for anyone else so how am I effectively going to use that, you know, later on as I get older to hopefully affect, you know, positive change somewhere along the way. So I kind of view it as a, as a big responsibility as well. And, and you know, it'll be cool to have, you know, we, we, we've traveled a lot and, you know, I don't, I don't like have a huge emphasis on toys and, and values. I had a, I did buy a Porsche at one point and that was really fun to drive around on the track, but I found like going to work and driving like, well, I have a pretty long commute, 80 miles. Uh, it just wasn't that cool to drive it on the freeway, not really turning. <laughs> I was like, well, I'm going to sell this. And we got something that was uh, a hybrid where I get better gas mileage. It was more, it's more fun to me to watch the gas mileage. Like I only use 0.69 gallons of gas to get to work today. Like that's more fun than, than driving my Porsche to work. So sold that bought more economical cars. So I don't have like a huge, a huge taste for, uh, for like super fancy things. Although we do like, like I said, we like to travel and stuff. So I don't know, just keep growing it to the, to the best, of, the best of my ability. And then, you know, hopefully be able to, to give it to a worthy cause that I think is going to be impactful down the road. Yeah, that's cool. So just for our listeners, can you walk through the math of, of hitting those targets that you kind of explained and, and what that looks like and what kind of rate of return and how you kind of get to that point? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, I, I just, I, I, I plug in, you know, what I currently have. So right now I'm a, you know, I finished, we finished 20, 2021 with about 2.5. So I plug that in. I say, hey, a growth rate of 10%. And that, of course, that's a, 
that's a net worth uh, increase. So not all my investments are are going to grow at 10%, but most of it is invested at this point. Like I don't have much that's not. So with my with my house stuff, if you look at internal rates of returns, I don't know if you guys are familiar with that, but that basically factors in depreciation, appreciation, and equity growth in your in your rentals, and those usually average 15 to 20%. So uh, a 10% greater ro- ro- growth rate is, I think, you know, not some people, you know, like have a six or seven. You could play with the number there, but I so I assume 10%, and then a take home salary. You know, right now our take home is depending on where we're at between two and 300 K on a take home. So if I invest a quarter of that, I, I plug that in each month as an, as an investment amount. So I'm growing our net worth by a quarter of our take home. And then the rest is just compound interest at 10%. And if you just do that and keep adding up each year, Hey, add 10% plus dump a little bit in it, but in for that we add next year, add 10%, dump a little more in, add 10%, dump a little more in. Uh, and you just extrapolate it out. Just use an Excel, Excel, you just drop it down and it does all the math for you. And yeah, it starts getting into some pretty uh, crazy numbers. Yeah, no, it's crazy. And we have tons of listeners that write in trying to figure out how the math works. And it's just, it's remarkable to play with it a little bit and then to really see how much of it comes from compounded interest versus actually your own contributions, right? Yeah, and and that's crazy. And that's like that whole, one thing I, we did take a finance class in school. And you guys have probably seen like the Ben and Arthur thing, the guy that starts investing at 25 and then stops at 35. The other guy starts investing from 35 all the way to 65. And the dude that started earlier ends up with more than the guy that started later and invested like three times more. Yep. Yep. Totally. So that's a, that was a good kind of eye opener. I remember seeing that and I was like, man, investing early is important. And it really, it really is. I mean, if you want to change your trajectory on where you're at, if you dump a bunch in early and use that power of compound interest, I remember a basketball coach growing up told me, he's like, compound interest is the eighth one of the world. Like, yeah, these little words of wisdom. And that kind of always stuck with me too, being like, oh yeah, compound interest must be important. And then you start the numbers <laughs> and, and looking at it and it's just, it's like, yeah, that, that makes a big difference. Like, I'm going to be, my money's going to make way more than I'm ever going to possibly earn, you know, just working a W-2 job in my life. Yeah. Yeah. So Philip, I'm, I'm kind of curious, you bring up giving and, and you bring up getting this big net worth and you have, you have children and stuff. I'm just curious, do you have a will and do you have a trust and how do you kind of look at, do you talk to your kids about this? Do you plan on it? What's kind of the yeah, take there? That's been kind of tricky. We're, they're starting to get to the point now where I'm like, Hey, when we leave this house in a few years, we're going to move to LA and We've kind of been looking at houses and they'll see the house and like, dad, that is a house of luxury that you want to buy. That house looks awesome because we have these like houses that we look at on the coast or whatever. And, you know, our next house will probably be uh, we want to live close to the airport in L.A. because we're hopefully be flying out of there with our future careers. And, you know, L.A. homes on the coast are between two and four million dollars. So looking at buying one of those, you know, down the road at, at some point. Uh, and so the kids kind of have an idea that like, Hey, mom and dad have some money, you know, that they, they want to buy these super awesome houses, but you know, they don't have the context of what a million dollars is yet. So, uh, at some point we're, we're kind of trying to balance, you know, how much, how much do we really want to tell them that they have? Cause we don't have a sense of entitlement, which I don't think they will. They all, they're all pretty good kids, but also, you know, you know, balance that with, you know, giving them enough to make sure they can go to school or, or do what they, they need to do without giving them the sense that they don't have to do anything. Um, as far as like trust and will, we do have wills right now. I need to start probably, I've talked with my wife about that. And we probably need to start doing some estate and trust planning to decide how this all gets shaken out, you know, where the worst to happen. So that's kind of my next to do list is, is start setting up some uh, estate and trust planning to make sure this all goes, you know, where we want it to go. If yeah, heaven forbid, heaven forbid something happens to us and now the courts or, or our family has to try to decide how to deal with this money. And that's kind of a delicate thing too. I, I my parents uh, know that we have a fair amount of money. My in-laws don't know. I mean, they know that we're well off and we're doing well. They don't know that we have a multi-million dollar net worth. Uh, neither do any of my friends. So it's kind of hard to bring up. Like, how do you tell your friends, Oh, Hey, do you have an estate planning guy? I got two and a half million dollars in net worth. Can you help me out? Like, 
how am I, I really have, my friends know that we have money, but they don't know we have that much. It's like, how are your friends going to look at you if they find out you have two and a half million? Yeah. In the, in the yeah. military, everyone knows what everyone makes. There's no, there's no disguise on what the income is. So everyone knows what you're, what you make every, every year. It's published, uh, you know, online. You just go and look up what your rank is and what you make. But so that's kind of a delicate subject. There is, you know, there's another guy in, in our unit who has a, a wife who's a professional that makes a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. So I'll confide with him on like, you know, what are you thinking about this or this, but not like actual net worth numbers. Cause it's kind of weird to think how your friend, are they going to expect you to buy every, every time you go out? Are they going to expect you to whatever, foot the bill for this, or are they just want to look at you differently. So that's been something I've kind of been struggling with. I want to help and advise like my buddies and be like, Hey, you need to invest. You need to invest. Here's what you should do. And some of them have like latched onto it and been like, awesome. Like I actually just got to uh, one of my buddies, he just bought a mid south home, and they have a little referral kickback. I get like a thousand dollars, so I just texted him today. I was like, "Hey, I got my thousand bucks. Thanks for buying a mid south home." Um, they stopped their referral program, unfortunately. They they were getting too tight on trying to buy their buy their flips, uh, so they stopped their referral program. But but trying to talk with friends about it is kind of a difficult thing. So you're kind of on an island in that sense. So yeah, having some uh, you know a state, someone a lawyer, someone I can go to and start setting up that stuff that can give me advice. Because at this point, it's kind of hard to be like. Oh, what, what's the hot stock? You know, what do you want to buy? And, and just kind of have water cooler talk. It's, it's the point now where it's a little more serious. So uh, that's been kind of a challenge. Yeah, not really being able to disclose it <laughs> with anyone around us. Yeah, it's, it's actually a really interesting, Phil, because that's something that we hear from a, a lot of millionaires, right? Is that who, who to tell, when to tell, how much to tell? You yeah. know, I, I think it's a, it's a common concern. So I just want to f- flip back here. We've talked a lot about your investments, right? Market and, and real estate, but kind of shifting to your life here a little bit. Four kids, both you and your wife working, yeah. right? How have you managed that? You know, what advice to somebody who, who maybe both spouses are working? What, what's kind of worked and what hasn't worked for you? Yeah, that's been, that was a real big concern when my wife, you know, wanted to go back to work. Obviously, she was just felt like she, I mean, their stay at home mom is like, I think, one of the hardest jobs in the world because I'll be stay at home dad a lot now because she's on the road, you know, uh, 10 to 12 days out of a month. So I'm stay at home dad. Uh, a lot of days where I come home from work and I'm getting the kids' homework done and, and get them fed, get everything ready, get them up in the morning, get lunches made, get them off to school. The only way that we've been able to really make it work is we have her, her mother lives about uh, 10 miles away. So she moved uh, closer to us. Her father passed away about four years ago. So she, she moved closer to be with us. Uh, so that's helpful, but she's 70. She's a little older. So it's not like she can take the kids, you know, full time and do full time nanny. So we're also, we reached out to like nanny.com. And when we decided she was going back to work, I'm like, we need, we can't just have your mom do everything. That's too much. So we have a nanny that, uh, that we found that she's been awesome. She's been with us for a couple of years. And she picks up the kids from school on the days that we're both working. Uh, she takes them to their after uh, after school activities, um, drops them off. So they they have soccer season and they do taekwondo and they do they play much play sports year round. So the seasons when the sports are going, it can be it can be crazy. For for this last fall, we had soccer, and because of their ages, they were all four on four different soccer teams. So that meant four different practices, four different games on Saturdays. So it's a lot of, a lot of shuffle. My wife's really organized. She mastered Google Calendar. So. It'll be like, hey, come in, you know, kid one has to get picked up from school here. Kid two has to get dropped off here. So there's a little bit of logistics sometimes with how they're going to get to all their activities. But we have we have a nanny that that helps, like I said, pick them up from school. And then my job in the Air Force has been awesome. I I can be home pretty much every night at around five o'clock. We really don't have too many crazy late nights or late flights uh, with the flying that I do. So uh, on the occasion that I do have to fly late or none, no one can be here overnight, Grandma will will come in and take over. And, uh, and, and do that. We actually make it work this last week. We just took a trip to Fiji for a week. And it was the first time we were away from the kids. So, uh, we had nanny did uh pick up from school and after school activities, grandma came over, fed him bed, saved him for the night, uh, took him to school in the morning and then nanny picked him up after, after school. So 
that was the first time that we were away from the kids, but it was awesome. We went to this, my wife bid on this, uh, trip at a, at an auction, uh, to go to Fiji. And I was like, I guess we're going to Fiji. <laughs> so we ended up being there for uh, <laughs> a, five, a five day trip to Fiji, but this place was unbelievable. It was all, all five course food. You had your own private villa. Uh, we took my sister and cousin cause they were there at the, at the incident when my wife bid on it. So we invited them to come along and they helped chip in for some of it, but it was, uh, all the foods included. You had a 12 person wait staff. It was on the beach. You took snorkeling trips, day trips, went around the village. It was just, it was out of control. It was beautiful. So that was one of those wow. things kind of like, you know, Hey, we worked really hard the last couple of years. We actually finally spoiled ourselves on a, on a bit of an awesome vacation. Uh, and it was really cool. But was, and because we had that support at home, we had the nanny, we had grandma, uh, close. So we were able to make it work at work. So right now it's working, uh, uh, pretty well so far, just having that kind of support system, but we wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to do it without having some really good help. So, I mean, two working professionals, you need to have either family or, or a really reliable nanny to, to make it happen. Awesome. So I want to just end here with some rapid fire questions before we get into just mistakes and advice. So yeah, what, what's the most expensive car you've ever purchased? Uh, our newest, our newest minivan was I think $48,000. Like I said, it came with uh, almost 12 or $13,000 in federal rebates uh, or, or rebate, the state, federal, all, all the rebates that kicked in. I think we got a pretty good deal after all that stuff, but yeah, about 50 grand on it. It's a hybrid. <laughs> you can get 30 miles electric charge. It's got screens. So we spent a lot of time in the car with the kids driving around. So we figured, uh, spend some money on the car. So yeah, our minivan is our most expensive car. <laughs> okay. What items or experiences are worth spending more money on? What's worth the splurge? Yeah. Like I said, we, we love to travel. So we've, we've done, uh, we took the kids actually when our, when our daughters were about one years, one year old, one and a little bit older. Uh, we went to China with them. So we've traveled with them, did a week in China. We went to New Zealand, uh, traveled around there for, for a week. So we've gotten to see, so we really value travel. Uh, we go skiing every, every spring break. And then we're always on the road, whether it's local trips or other stuff, uh, traveling. So I value the travel. That's actually, that's a pretty common answer. Uh, a lot of people say that travel is worth it. And, and, and in my case, that's been it. And then just relationships with people doing stuff that, that bonds with other people, because in the end, money's just a tool to, to experience life. So if you're not using it to, you know, enhance relationships, see family, stuff like that, it's just just kind of immaterial. Sure. What's not worth the money to you? Um, I, I try and be like value invest in pretty much everything I do. So if, if I can get a, a deal on, on something, I, I try and get a deal. It's fine. Even being a multimillionaire, when I go to the supermarket, if I buy an off brand and can save like, you know, you see the per unit ounce price or whatever, I always check those. So like trying to get good value on, on basically anything, but specifically like not worth the money. Like I said, I, I had a Porsche for a while and that was awesome and fun to drive, but I, I ended up selling it just because it, it didn't really hold up value. So you know, new, we don't buy a lot of new stuff, although my, it seems like we get an Amazon box every day from my wife, either buying basically because you can put your whole life on Amazon now. So I don't think we really shop anymore. Everything comes from Amazon. <laughs> uh, but uh, just be able to have, have value in, in what you have and, and try not to overpay for, for stuff that's just, you know, in material possessions. Yeah. How old were you be- when you became a millionaire? Do you remember? Yeah, I didn't start tracking this until I got a little bit older. And I was, I know you guys asked that. So I was trying to think, and I think we were probably in our young, our young thirties, this has really kind of, you know, grown as, as she's gone back to work and we've had a little more disposable income to dump in. But on 15 June of 2016 is when I started tracking and we had 1.2. So probably sometime around the, around 2016, 2015 is when we first became millionaires. So about, so, about five years ago. So 20, yeah, that's pretty amazing, right? So 2016, yeah. you're 1.2, 2020 now, just the start of 2020, March yeah. of 2020 here, you're at 2.4. So. It only took you, what, four years, four and a half years to get that yeah. second million. 
Yeah, it's crazy. And that a lot has to do with how much we've been invested in equities and the market's been right. hot since, since that yeah. time it's gone up. So, so yeah, it's, it, I, as I was telling my wife, I was like, Hey, I think we just hit like over a million dollars. She's like, what? And I'm like, now we're at 1.4, now 1.6, now we're at 1.8. So I'll kind of like, she'll be like, what? How's it going up so fast? And I'm like, that's <laughs> in the market, man. I don't know what else to tell you. Right, right. Have you ever used a financial advisor? Uh, I'm not. I've kind of, I read, uh, Tony Robbins has a really good book, Unshakable, and he kind of, talks about the the cost of financial advisors and paying that 1% fee like when you and it and it really b- bears out when you run those numbers if i do a an 8% or 9% return versus a 10% return and extrapolate it out over 40 years i end up losing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars probably millions if i if i run the whole numbers out i pay in that 1% uh, i have to look at the difference but his his whole analogy is that hey these guys if they they're charging 1% for you know asset allocation and fees most of them probably can't beat the market you know, in, uh, there, there's a guys that do every year, um, but they don't probably do it consistently. They don't t- any of they don't put any risk in there. They don't have any skin in the game. They're just taking your one percent. So you're going to pay 40 per 40 to 50 percent potentially of your of your net worth to someone who doesn't have any uh, any skin in the game. So uh, when you run those numbers out, I just I kind of said, hey, we'll just stick with low cost index investing. I'm going to I'm going to own the market. I have 500 different stocks. If I own an S&P 500, I'm all diversified. Um, I could get maybe a little trickier with some of them. And, and try and, and try and do better. But it's a, my kind of philosophy is no one really beats the market consistently. So why not just own the market? Sure. Okay. How much do you spend a year household spending? Um, uh, we probably spend about eight to nine grand a month. If you include our mortgage and all everything else we pay for kids activities, uh, you know, cars, everything else. Um, so we're probably around 80 to 90 K spending a year on a annual income. That's probably cl- or close to 300. And, and what was the range? What was it when you first started? When we first started, I was going to look this up, but I think as, as brand new second lieutenants, I think we both made about fifty to sixty thousand dollars each. So we started out at a six figure income just starting out. So we're probably close to sixty or one hundred twenty combined uh, pretty quickly. And a lot of that being in the military, a lot of that is tax free, especially when you deploy. We deployed a bunch when we were younger, so you're not paying tax on a lot of that money. So it's even it's even bigger uh, starting out. So that was a huge and thing. I mean, no student. No student yeah. loans and a pretty good net worth to start. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. No, no debt at all, really, right? I mean, you got some mortgage on your houses and stuff, but no student loans is the big one. Yeah, no student loans. We haven't. Yeah, no other, other than mortgage debt. And then I and I did. Uh, we didn't have any equity. I just bought that other house, so we have a loan on that on that new van that we bought. It's like six hundred bucks a month uh, for that. But other than that, yeah, no other no other debt. So so Philip, just big picture here. I'm going to vaguely say your age, young forties ish, right? Um, yeah, thirty nine. Yeah. Okay. Yep. There you go. What what is happiness for you? What what does it mean to be happy, to be fulfilled, right? Obviously you said the money's just a tool to you know to build relationships and to experience things, but throughout this whole journey, I mean you guys have obviously been extremely successful young age. You've both been successful in your career. It sounds like a great family. Yeah. What does it mean to be happy or fulfilled? What's what's this all about for you? Uh, yeah, like I said, I mean family is like we you know we we chose to have a pretty big family and that you know that was important for us. Like I said, relationships, but uh, more than anything, just be able to to experience life. Like you get one life, right? Might not, might as well maximize it. And if this is a tool to let you maximize and and hopefully do something, you know, pretty cool down the road, since you have the flexibility of of maybe not working as much. Uh, we both, you know, want to be airline pilots, uh, continue on down the road. But part of the beauty of that is you can kind of dictate your schedule. Since we have this net worth, we don't have to, you know, work uh, a full pilot schedule. You can scale back, give away trips, and you know, and work part time. 
and it just gives you more chance to, like I said, get out and experience life. I love sports. I love going to sporting events. Obviously, I bought the tickets, but we've been to you know a bunch of a bunch of great sporting events. Uh, so just getting out there and and doing what you what you love, and then sharing it with the people around you. Like yeah, it's it's like asking the you know the secret to life or what what do you have. Uh, it was kind of interesting on that vein uh, when we went to this Fiji trip and it was basically everything was taken care of for you. Like your driver was there, your food was there. We didn't think about anything. And we sat there for five days and not having to do anything and have everything provided for you. And I was like, I don't I don't know if I could do this forever. Like the first three days, it was unbelievably awesome. After like three or four days, I'm like, I need to be like doing something like you can't just sit around and just have food brought to you and, and have these amazing you know, experiences like that, that inner desire to work and achieve and do something is like, was, was realized, I guess, on that trip, because I'm like, our bodies are made to be productive and do work, like just sitting around doing nothing isn't anything. So continuing to build whatever it is that I'm into or or we're into down the road, um, whether it's a foundation or it enhanced, you know, school or whatever it is, just having that flexibility to, to continue to build. I think that we were made to, to work and do stuff because that seems to be like how people are most happy. Uh, so yeah, just continue on that vein. Philip, I'm just kind of curious, as you've gone on this financial journey, you've talked about traveling and these vacations, you bring up this trip in Fiji. How much do you typically spend on vacations or maybe even the one that you just recently went on to Fiji? Yeah, that trip, that, that so that house, that was a $20,000 for that week. Uh, we split it between uh, four people. So we both paid $10,000 or my, our family, me and my wife paid $10,000 for that trip and my sister and uh, cousin each paid $5,000. So that was a that was a ten thousand dollar trip. That that's probably about the most we've ever spent on like a vacation. We did was I think our trip to China was about ten thousand dollars, and then uh, about some it was a little less than that. When we went to New Zealand, so we we do that. We usually do you know one big trip, and then uh, uh, we go skiing. We go skiing every year, which you know is, is is an expensive sport, but getting the kids in ski lessons, I think they're charging like two hundred dollars a day per kid. So when we had four kids' lessons, it was like eight hundred bucks a day to teach them how to ski. So. We, they learned to ski pretty quick because I was like, we're not paying $800 a day just for you guys to <laughs> learn to ski. So they figured out by the, time they were four, by the time they were five and six, I'm like, you're skiing with us, man. So yeah, so we, we'll, we'll, we'll pay you know some pretty big money for some of these trips. But usually we drive, although it is nice with my my wife being an airline uh, pilot, we can fly standby for free. So the kids have been to Hawaii three times last year because we can just hop on a flight and, and head out to Hawaii if there's empty seats. So my wife had to fly Christmas Eve. And I was like, hey, there's empty seats on your flights. What if we just came with you on Christmas or Christmas night and flew it to Hawaii with you? And she's like, you guys would do that? And I was like, yeah, let's do it. So we hopped on, uh, barely squeaked on the flight and spent two nights in Hawaii uh, pretty much for free because we could fly standby. Um, it is dicey because there have to be empty seats. So you show at the airport, hoping open the seats hold out. But we've been able to travel like that too, uh, pretty inexpensively by being able to hop on flights. Yeah, it's kind of like a travel hacking for for pilots. That's awesome. So, Philip, just to kind of wrap up, what what mistakes have you made, and, and couple that with maybe the advice that you would give to somebody who's just starting out? Yeah, I mean, I, mistakes that we've made. We bought cars before we went to uh, to Japan, and I had to sell them. Um, uh, so, yeah, just the value in cars dropped so fast. I quickly learned that buying newer newer cars is just not not super smart. So, or if you buy a new one, I did, my Nissan Altima I drive right now, we bought. I bought new because we had just moved back from the States and I needed a car and it went a hassle with used car stuff. So I just bought a new one. It was easy. Uh, but car values don't, don't really hold up. So don't, don't pay for a new car unless, you know, it's your dream car and you saved up and you can probably pay cash for it. Other than that lesson, obviously guy, we've, we, I've harped on it early, but just investing early when you're young, we yeah, just kind of, I can like a living proof of the, of the idea of compound interest of like, Hey, just dump a bunch of money in when you're young. If you have, if you can do it, I mean, don't, you know, when you're, when you're just out of college, you want to, you want to spend money doing, you know, you finally have freedom and, and some money, but 
uh, you know, live your life and spend money. But at the same time, if you can just set up a regimented thing where money is automatically going into your investments and you don't think about it, you don't ever see it. Uh, that's kind of how I set all our stuff up was just automatically take the money at the beginning of the month. It goes into the investment. I never feel like I have to spend it. I don't feel like I'm losing it because it was never there. So early automatic investing um, into a low cost mutual fund is, is sounds sounds kind of simple, but it, it works. That's awesome. Once again, that's Philip with a net worth of $2.4 million. Thanks for coming on the show today. Yeah, thanks guys a bunch. Keep up the great work. I really enjoyed the podcast and thanks for having me. Thanks, Philip. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled Podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mantinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire. 